You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 161, Oz Guinness and Carpe Diem Redeemed. My friends, welcome to Halfway There. This, of course, is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I am your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here today, you guys. I cannot believe that I we're going to do this, that this episode happened, and that I'm going to get to share this episode with you because one person whose work has literally had a ton of impact on my life is our guest today. And um, there's a book called A Free People's Suicide. I talk about it in this um, in this episode with him that where he defined character and how character really does shape everything and why it's so desperately important that made me start to think, how do we shape character differently? That's what set me on this path of trying to tell stories, getting people to tell me their stories instead of trying to write things that would make people agree, be persuasive in my writing. I was never very good at that. Not when I tried to preach, not when I tried to write. It's not my style. But telling stories and just getting you, just asking questions and listening and clarifying, that was my style. And uh, I found it in part because of our guest today. And so I am so unbelievably stoked to be able to share this episode with you. Um, I cannot wait. I hope you'll listen to the whole thing. And really just share it around. He has a way of putting things um, and his, he's just fun to listen to. And he, his, some of his stories, you guys, you're not going to believe some of these stories. They go back literally hundreds of years uh, about his family uh, because you know his family. So today our guest is Oz Guinness. Can you believe that? Oz Guinness is a social critic and an author and a speaker if you've never had the chance to even watch a video of Oz Guinness, you should do that. Just go to Google or, Google or YouTube, search it up, and listen to him speak. Now, he's incredibly smart. He's going to give you some, um, you know, some really meat, intellectual meat to think about. But you'll be chewing on it for days, for weeks probably. I know I have. And it's really, really Good. We he makes some clarifications in here for me that I thought just they just blew my mind and made me really grateful to have this conversation. Let alone all of his other work. Um, it was such a such an amazing story about his family, where they come from, and uh, how they came to Christ. And don't ever, don't ever doubt if it matters if you share the gospel with somebody because it most certainly does. And you'll hear that today. All right. So that's enough of me rambling. Let's talk. Let's hear my conversation with Oz Guinness. Oz, welcome to Halfway There. Thanks, Eric, for having me. It's a pleasure to be on with you. I am so glad to have you. Um, Tell us a little bit about who you are and, and what you're doing now. I mentioned some of the things, author, speaker, social critic, but tell us what that means. Um, means I'm a writer and speaker, <laughs> um, but from my 20s onwards, I've been very interested in trying to understand the crazy world in which we live. You know, I came to faith in 1960 
and I was at London University as an undergraduate, and we had deep, rich blocks of theology from great Christian teachers like Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Stott and Michael Green and people like that, Jim Packer. But there was absolutely no understanding of the culture around. And the 60s was an explosive decade with the counterculture and the Berkeley Free Speech Movement and drug, sex, rock and roll, the Beatles, Fellini and all that. And no Christians I knew understood it. And so I was living sort of schizophrenically. And then I met Francis Schaeffer, who was the first man I knew who connected all the dots and gave gave us a freedom to think about anything and everything under the Lordship of Christ. So that was a tremendous surge for me. And since then, that's been central to the heart of my calling. And here we are many decades later in an extraordinarily interesting time in world history, American history, and the church's history. And it's a challenge to try and understand it. You know the verse in Acts where it says, David served God's purpose in his generation. And so that's my challenge, to try and understand where we are and how we can be more faithful in responding to where we are. Yeah, that is so important. I know a lot of Christians right now, particularly in America, are trying to figure that out, right? We're trying to, we're looking at what's happening politically, where evangelicals have been so involved um, on one side of the aisle, and we're we're a little bit confused because it's a, it's a tough time. Well, there are lots of ways to look at that. I mean, one way is through the lens of history. You can see that we have challenges as a church in American culture because we're negotiating the loss of our previous Christian consensus. America was never officially Christian, but it was shaped by a consensus that was broadly Christian, and we've lost it. And if you look back, say, to the Jews in the first century— they they had a similar problem. Eventually, they lost their land, their king, their monarchy, their priesthood, everything that they associated with what it meant to be Jewish, and then they floundered. They were deeply divided, and you had a kind of fight-or-flight response. Some people, like the Maccabees or the Zealots or uh, mm. Simon Barkovba later, they wanted to fight, fight the Romans. And you can see that element today. People want to fight to get our culture back in that way. And others, flight. You had the Essenes who went to Qumran, and you know, through them we had the Dead Sea Scrolls and so on. But they lived in their communities, kind of like the Benedict option. We got to withdraw in order to fight better. <laughs> yeah. But neither of those worked. And eventually, it wasn't fight or flight, but faithfulness in a new way. And with the growth of Judaism through the synagogues and so on, they actually found a way of living despite their being scattered and persecuted horrendously for nearly 2,000 years. They survived well. And so just as Augustine gave us the vision of the city of God and the city of man, you know, at the time when Rome fell, we've, we've got to ask ourselves how we respond to the crisis of the loss of our Christian consensus and do it in a way that's neither fight nor flight, but faithfulness in a new way. Oh, I like that contrast. Fight, flight, or faithfulness. That's good. Okay, so I want to hear more of your story. Um, so obviously the first thing that most of us think of when we hear the the name Guinness is the beer, right? So you're you're from that family. 
That is, yes, that's certainly my family, and I'm very grateful for it. My ancestor, whose signatures are on the back of the bottle, a very elaborate signature, yeah. he came to faith in Christ through John Wesley. So we owe a great deal to John Wesley and George Whitfield and that first great awakening in the late 1730s because it shaped Ireland as much as England and later America. So my side of the family has been solidly committed to Christ ever since. I'm actually descended from Arthur Guinness's youngest son, and there's a wonderful story there because in, in 1815 there was Ireland's last duel. A city councillor, brash young man, insulted the great Catholic politician Daniel O'Connell, and the only recourse was a duel. But while the councillor was a crack shot, O'Connell was a very bad shot. He was hardly used a gun at all. To everyone's surprise, O'Connell hit him, and the crack shot missed, and the man died. And his widow, left with two kids and a scandal and all sorts of things, went over to Scotland considering suicide, but was stopped in her tracks when she saw and heard a plowboy whistling and singing hymns. And she crossed the river, talked, didn't take her life, went back to Ireland, came to faith, and she met and married my great-great-grandfather, the son of Arthur Guinness. The important point being, the family records show us that she prayed every day for 10 generations of future descendants. Oh, wow. And I think we're covered by that great woman's prayers as well as by the Lord's grace and providence. So there's hardly a person in that side of the family, outside of the family, who hasn't been a follower of Christ. My great-grandfather was in the Irish Revival at the age of 23. There are newspaper accounts of 30, 25, 30,000 in the crowd, and the Spirit would fall, and people would hear the gospel, although there was no loudspeakers, and there was an incredible conviction of sin and an awakening, and in that part of Ireland, there was literally, believe it or not, only one crime in the whole year after the awakening. Wow. His son uh, was my grandfather, and he went as a missionary to China, and that's quite a story in itself. So both my parents were born in China, and then I was born in China. Yeah, which is really interesting. So one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is this idea, which you just completely embody, of the having a much bigger um vision for the future than just you know my lifetime right it's one thing if i make an impact and make some change but what if we change something that lives on for generations and so like that's most americans don't have a, a 10 generation view you know no and it's part of our individualism and part of our so-called generationalism yeah. Each generation cut off. Now, the fact is that every generation is just one more pulse beat in the life of humanity. And you look, say, in the, the Exodus, and as the rabbis say, what did Moses talk about the night of the Passover? Hundreds of years of slavery, and tonight we're going free. Did he talk about freedom? No. <laughs> did he talk about the promised land flowing with milk and honey? No. Did he talk about the great howling desert they had to cross? No. He talked about children 
three times Moses talked about children. And you can see in the scriptures, the Old and the New Testaments, tremendous stress Mm. on transmission, handing it on, making sure that every generation goes on. Now, Americans have forgotten that. Yeah. And if you think both a, a faith community and a free society require transmission, you've got to hand it on to the next generation, or in a single generation, it can die. And so we've got to rediscover that in the church again today and make sure we're handing on the faith. Absolutely. And we can't just pass that work off to the children's workers, right? We have to take it personally as well. Oh, absolutely. And the heart of it is families. Absolutely. Parents to children, teachers to students, and so on. And as I said, both faith and freedom depend crucially on that transmission. Mm, Amen. Okay, so you were born in China to mis- parents who were missionaries. What was that like? And, you know, I would I would guess, I've heard you talk about this a little bit, but I would guess that it was a, a very faith-filled uh, environment, but then you didn't really find Christ until later. Well, China wasn't faith-filled. It was broadly Buddhist in the old Chinese way before the communists came in. And it was extremely dangerous and violent. I was born during World War II. The Japanese had invaded, and they killed 17 million in the invasion. And everyone east of a certain line was put into their internment camps, and we were just west of that. So we had to make our way as best we could out to be able to fly to India and then get back to Britain. But there was a terrible famine. And in that famine, my two brothers died. In fact, Mm. five million died in three months. And when my parents and I uh, joined the road, we we were in in a group of 10 million refugees on the road looking for food and and water. It was an incredible time. As soon as World War II was over, uh, my parents took me back to what was then Nanjing and the capital of Uh, the free part of China that America and the West supported. And that's the part I do remember. I don't remember the famine. I was too small. I was only three. But I remember well from 1946 to 1951, we lived in Nanking. I remember the day in 1949 when my dad said to me, son, we're in trouble. Chiang Kai-shek has just flown to Taiwan. In other words, the leader had left and we were left to the mercy of the communist troops marching in as they did, and the reign of terror began. So I was there at the climax of the Chinese Revolution and the beginning of the persecution of the church and the reign of terror. Wow. Okay. So how did that shape your view of of God and, and kind of his faithfulness? Did it? Well, I, I, you know, I was very small at that stage. Yeah. My father was absolutely fearless, so I grew up without any fear <laughs> at all. And, you know, you were just born in times like that. You just consider whatever you're born into was normal for the world. Yeah. So it didn't seem any particular great big deal at the time. And as I said, I was never afraid because my father was never afraid. It's only later when I began to realize the significance yeah. of the times through which I'd lived. Now, my parents, when we were, we were under house arrest for two years with the communists, and then they were allowed to send me home 
uh, with a friend who later became a professor of Princeton. So I went back to with him to Hong Kong. I remember when we landed in Hong Kong, not about landing, we walked across the final bridge between China and Hong Kong, and we were met by a British bobby, a policeman, because it was then a British colony, who handed everyone who came out a Coke as the <laughs> symbol you are now in a free part of the world. Oh, wow. Well, I went back to England, and really from nine through my teenage years, I didn't really have my parents in my life. And so while I knew they loved me, and they obviously prayed for me, they were under arrest, first of all, in China. So they had no immediate influence in my life. And I was at an English boarding school and probably lived like most other teenagers at the time, rather a pagan existence. And it was only my last year at school, partly through a Christian friend and partly through reading C.S. Lewis, then I came myself back to the Christian faith. I was very intrigued with Albert Camus. He was my hero until then. So I grew up in, that was in the 50s when people like Camus and Sartre and Nietzsche were widely read. And for me, coming to faith was a kind of intellectual debate between the Nietzsche's and the Sartre's and Camus of this world. And then on the other hand, you know, Pascal G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, and, and the great Christian authors. And I was finally convinced that the Christian faith was truly true. And mm. that's how I became a Christian. Was there one or two things specifically that that you that kind of tipped you over the edge or that you finally had to accept it, that it was true? No, not, not really. It was that the whole of the biblical physics, yeah. uh, you know, it fitted very much what I knew of reality, the nature of God, the nature of human beings, the fact of evil in the world, and you know all sorts of things. And there was not just the resurrection and the life of Jesus. Hmm. That's kind of interesting, because that's usually where apologists will spend a lot of time, right? Is just Jesus and the empty tomb. Well, of course, that is the climax and the linchpin of everything. But I think too many Christians begin and end only there. And that's a problem. So you have something like you know, the Alpha Course, which is terrific, and millions of people have come to faith through it. But it, it begins with, who was Jesus? You know, as the Bible doesn't begin there, it begins with creation and the exodus and human dignity and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And to me, you've got to bring bring in the whole biblical picture, and and not just Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the old. But too many Christians just have Jesus. You know, there's even a saying here in Washington, Jesus plus nothing, (laughs) which actually, if you think about it, is stupid. Right. There's Jesus plus everything, but all under the lordship of Jesus. Right. Yeah, it's interesting how that language has consequences, doesn't it? It sort of makes us oh, un unknowing about the world that we're in and we I've been thinking for a long time about how I grew up basically a gnostic where the spiritual was good and the physical was bad and that's just not true, right? But the language we used led me in that direction. No, exactly. And the wonderful thing is Christians are true materialists but a lot more too. You know, as we appreciate the body, 
and food and drink and wine and making love and things like this. And the beauty of a sunset or a whatever it is, we are people who really, because of creation, have an incredible appreciation of truth and beauty in all this world around us. But of course, not only that, it's because it's all under the Lord, created by him, that it has a much deeper meaning than it would for an atheist. Right. And it makes it all make sense, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. My new book is called Carpe Diem, uh, Redeemed. And I wrote it because a year ago I was back home in Oxford and I came across a book by an Australian philosopher called Carpe Diem, Regained. And it was a blatantly atheist view of seizing the day. And uh, so it was actually fun to read, but hopelessly <laughs> uh, falling short at the end of the day. And as I understand Carpe Diem, in other words, seizing the day, understanding the times, the biblical view, the Jewish and Christian view of time and of history is incredibly different from, on the one hand, the Eastern view, which sees time as a circle, cycle, a wheel, and on the other time, and the secularist view that sees time merely as a succession of moments with no particular meaning unless you make a meaning. And the biblical view is richer and deeper in an extraordinary way. So I thought I need to try and write this down. So I wrote that book at, 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 at furious speed in a couple of months because the biblical view makes such incredible sense of life. Yeah, I love that. Well, do you maybe you want people to get the book, but do you want to tell us a little bit about what the biblical view of time is? Well, the book will be out at the end of the month. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. So it'll be out pretty soon. But you can see that in the biblical view, time and history are going somewhere. You know, if you see it as a wheel, it goes nowhere. Eventually, you're in a world of illusion. And if you go in the secular view, the only meaning you have is do it yourself. You know, when I was a student, I had sometimes seminars from Bertrand Russell. And his great picture was of Atlas, the Greek giant, who carried his own world on his own shoulders. And that was Russell's view of the atheist worldview, and a pretty good picture of it, too. It's, it's do it yourself. There's no meaning out there to be discovered. If you want meaning, do it yourself. And you see that same sort of thing in Nietzsche or Ayn Rand or whatever. But in the biblical view, you start with God's creation of time. And you start with God's providence in history. So time and history are going somewhere. And as we come to know God, we become partners with him in fulfilling his purpose in the world and working as his partners to restore the world. And you have an incredible view of life with purpose and fulfillment. As I said earlier, the verse about David serving God's purpose in his generation, an incredible vision. So mm. that's just the beginning of the, the biblical view of time. But of course, underlying everything is freedom. Yes. God has made us free, and we are free to be his partners and to engage in history and so on. So you have an incredibly rich, deep, and far more fulfilling view of time and history than you can find anywhere else in the world. Yeah, absolutely, because it's going somewhere. I, I really 
like that. I think it gives a lot of meaning to where we're headed and it's different. You know, I grew up where we would think of heaven as this kind of place that will go and it'll be all, you know, fine and no sin and no, all that stuff. But, um, but also no purpose, you know, in some ways. And God actually, the Christian view, take the whole story, is actually going someplace with purpose. Absolutely, but don't lose that. Sure, <laughs> the yeah. The Christian view is, is, is non-humanist. You know, we're partners with God. Right. To really pursue justice and freedom and peace in the world, but by ourselves, we'll never restore the world, we'll never repair the world well enough. A- absolutely. So we trust the Messiah when he comes, we'll do it. And then there will be a new world, and then there will be a day when the tears are wiped away and things will be perfect. The trouble is, too many people, you know, uh, they advanced everything so fast, all they thought about was heaven. Right. Whereas obviously we're here in the here and now, we've got to work for the Lord's purposes here and now. Did, have you ever had a, a season where you had a dark night of the soul or God felt far away? Not really. Hmm. I wrote a book. My second book is The Problem of Doubt. And people often ask me, you know, which of these doubts are your doubts? And they, none of them were, actually. It was just that I met so many people who were feeling guilty because of having doubts, and they felt that doubt was the opposite of faith. And so if you have doubts, you're letting the side down. And I was saying, you know, every human has doubts. Doubt is a halfway house. You have faith at one end and unbelief at the other end, and doubt is a kind of being in two minds or a halfway house between them. But just as you have, you know, coin, heads or tails, it'll, if it's spinning, come down one way or the other. So I wrote that particular book mm. to try and help people go from doubt back to faith and not on to unbelief. Now, I, I've clearly had huge challenges in my life, but growing up in the world I described to you earlier, You know, my mother gave me an incredible realism about trusting God in the dark. Father, I do not understand you, but I trust you. Mm. You know, that simple old maxim has stood by me. I mean, you know the book, Disappointed with God. Yeah. Well, it's very American because of notions like entitlement to feel disappointed with God. But I was given a view of of the world broken fallen, and so you have a view of, of the realism of the fall, and living with Francis Schaeffer, he had an incredibly strong view of that. So there's nothing that really surprises you. There are things that you know, are hurtful, things that are challenging, but they've never undermined my faith in God, despite mm-hmm. the hell that I might have been going through at a particular time, whether it was you know, cancer or some other problems that were very deep in different areas. Yeah. Interesting. I think that's a, a really encouraging take on it to, to think about, yeah, we're going to continue to trust God even in the dark. I think that's really important. That's actually why I asked that question. A story, a story that had been very important in my life. I was at Labrie with Francis Schaefer and we heard the story of an eminent Christian leader whose son had been killed in a cycling accident in Paris. And the great Christian leader, the father, flew over, preached at his son's funeral, 
people told us the story. And he preached on Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. And people said he was filled with hope, and it was an extraordinary witness at the funeral. And when the story was told to us, I remember Schaefer just saying simply, I hope he felt the same thing inside. Hmm. Well, three weeks later, Schaefer got a call from this man. Could he come and see him? And I remember meeting him, introducing the man to Schaefer, and they went into Schaefer's study. And about 10 minutes later, those of us in the chalet, we left. You know, Swiss chalets are rather thin walls that are wooden. And if you raise your voice, you can hear. And this, quote, great Christian leader was cursing and blaspheming. Why did God take his son, etc.? Well, we left out of respect, said that there was no overhearing. And later that night, I said to Schaefer, don't tell me in detail, but can you give me an idea of the sort of response you gave? He said, what I did was read John 11 aloud Mm -hmm. with him. And you remember, that's not just Jesus wept. Yeah. But three times, it says in the Greek, Jesus was furious. The very strongest Greek word for indignation. In other words, our Lord was angry at death. He didn't accept it. It was a party pooper. It was a gate crasher. Or as the theologians say, it should have been otherwise. It was not supposed to be this way. And that's the beginning of a Christian view of the brokenness of the world. And if you have a view like that, when things hit you, they don't knock out your faith. I do not understand you, Lord, but I trust you. Oh, beautiful. I actually, um, I had a chance, my grandfather died in April and I had a chance to pray at his funeral. And uh, I kind of just prayed, not through that passage really, but just, I tried to evoke that moment when Jesus is knowing what he's going to do, but he's, he's angry and he's weeping and he's, he's in that tension in between because he knows what it's like and we can trust him because of that. Exactly. Wow. Okay. Um, I want to, I want to share, so you've written a a lot of books and so we can't talk about all of them because I haven't read all of them, but one book I did want to talk to you about, um, because it's the one I said earlier that you've really influenced me, um, is, was a, a free people suicide, which, um, I'll tell, and I'll tell you how, so it wasn't, you So in that book, you kind of, you write about freedom and, and, and what that's about. And that title came from the Abraham Lincoln quote. Um, I, I can't remember it exactly, but if, if liberty is to die, it'll have to die by our own hand, something like that. Paraphrasing. As a nation of free men, either we will live free for all time or die by suicide. There you go. That's, uh, that's your memory's better than mine. <laughs> Um, but that there was something that you wrote in there, uh, that talked about character. I read that book and you talked about how character, how the founders knew that the whole thing was based on character in the United States. Like you, you, we could write whatever we want on a constitution, but the character of the people to hold people to the constitution, uh, matters and the, the character of, of people, um, being willing to be bound by a piece of paper and or to check people who weren't. Well, characters, I, I've also got, you may have come across it, a curriculum we do with the Trinity Forums of readings over the last 2,000 years. On It's called When No One Sees, Character in an Age of Image. But you have the same idea. Character is incredibly important, both for individuals, 
but also for leaders of nations, because on the one hand, character is the link, the bond between followers and leaders. If we know a leader's character, we can trust them even in the dark. We don't know why they're deciding what he or she is deciding, but they know, and they have the character that we can trust, which, of course, is broken down today, to put it mildly. But then again, (laughs) character is the sort of inner compass which for the highest leaders with the strongest power and the greatest freedom to do wrong still stops them. So it's incredibly important either way. And I think we need to think it through today in two ways. Character put very simply is the practice of learning the second nature of doing things as a matter of habit. Our first nature, you know, we do all sorts of things we like, but our second nature, we grow by the choices we make and the habits we lay down. And so we learn from the scriptures, you know, what the Greeks call virtue, the thing, honesty and things like that. And as we practice those, we become honest people. So it's partly habit. The other thing, as you said, well, is stories. In other words, you learn more by copying, emulating, being inspired by someone to rise higher than you would just by yourself through great stories stories of courage or stories of folly or whatever they are, both the inspiration and the warning come from stories. So stories are incredibly important. I stress those two things, habit mm. and stories. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. It's. I think it's interesting, too, the way our, our culture has gone has been, I would say, negative as we tell more and um, more negative stories, right? As TV and um, like I, I've been thinking about this a lot with, uh, let's say Netflix or, or even Amazon, you know, as people watch less cable, they're watching some of these places that don't have the kinds of restrictions that they did in say the eighties, nineties or earlier. Uh, and then it's no wonder that our culture is getting worse. So you talk about emulating people who we see in stories, right? I think we're, we're seeing that. Oh, absolutely. You take say. You know, the tragedy, the horror of the American mass murders, the massacres. Oh, man. You know, for a long time, people would say, well, the one constant, guns. Therefore, massacre means gun control. And now they're beginning to say, wait a minute, there are other constants. And the two that have always intrigued me, one is the recent one of the video games. Mm -hmm. So you take the guy in Dayton who was an avid video game player and loved killing people in the video games. Well, he was laying down character. But for me, the deepest thing that's a constant in all the American massacres is what you might call the disaffected loner. Yeah. The person so alienated from all decent family relations that they're off into their own head, whereas completely if they're mad or, you know, they've become really wicked in the way they've done that. Well, the the fact is that America's deepest crisis is relational. Right. And we who are Christians can say that, and eventually we hope the world will start to wake up to that. Yeah, well, I would love to see the church show up and fill that relational void, whether we believe people are believers or not, you know, like we should just love them. So you wouldn't have known this, but our, my kids today uh, went back to school 
And um, my kids actually go to the, a school where there was a shooting back in May, on May 7th, exactly three months ago. Um, mm-hmm. And so STEM school, it was a, it was a reported nationally, but um, so that was just a very difficult, obviously time, but they, uh, but after later, as I read the police reports, it turned out there were these two students. One was a transgender um, girl who wants to be a guy who who goes by the name of Alec. And they, um, you know, they had just, just horrible bullying and all kinds of things. And so, you know, we're trying to teach our kids, hey, you have to, you have to care for the loners, care for the people who are out there and notice mm-hmm. what they need because of that. So we have, we've had a very real, um, hard experience right in front of us here in our community. Now, that's incredibly important. And we should have an eye for people like that. And above all, pray that our own families and our own churches are showing strong relationships because that's the deepest social crisis in the country. Right. And if they're not more and more, I'm convinced we have to take the responsibility. So it's sometimes it's easy to let go. Well, somebody should do something about that. No, you should do something about that. Let's go do it. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Well, so I don't know, Oz, is there anything else that you want to, you know, relay to us, you know, about your experience of God or, you know, anything else in the in your book upcoming in, in Carpe Diem, Redeemed? Well, I, w- I would just say in finishing, you know, I'm now in my late 70s. I've followed Christ for uh, far more than 50 years, nearly 60 years. The Lord has never let me down. And the older I get, the more profound is my sense of wonder at the incredible relevance and reach of biblical truth. Mm. And I think as our Western culture is collapsing and America as a nation is in decline, it's time for followers of Jesus not to lose any confidence, but to shift onto the front foot and lay down the foundations, the great biblical foundations, the great truths of who God is, who humans are, what freedom is, what justice means, and things like this, including what time is. That's what my book's about. Yeah. You know, so we can live out with confidence an alternative to the chaos and madness around us. This is a great day for those who understand that the gospel is truly good news. It's the best news ever. And to move out just with a quiet confidence and live it out and speak it out. And that's the privilege of uh, this day. Amen. And it's never been more possible to share your story, share share that with whether you do it in a podcast like, like this or a book or just caring for your neighbor. You, you can do it. I love that. Oz, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate you just sharing a little bit of your story and some of your thoughts with us. You're most welcome, Eric. A real pleasure to be with you. God bless you and all all the people who listen to your program. 